Chad and Jay Mansbridge here, lead pastors of Bayside Church International, based here on the south coast of South Australia. Our great passion as a church is to help people to know Jesus and to demonstrate His love, truth and life in everything that we do. We hope you enjoy today's message. Last week, I got a big Bible here this morning. I borrowed this from Malcolm. So uh, it's full of jokes, apparently. That's uh, about all it's got in it, I think. So we'll see how we go. Um, last week, we started a preaching series for Term 4 in the lead up to Christmas. We've simply called it Good News of Great Joy for All People, the principal uh, scripture, that phrase comes from an angelic visitation. We know this Christmas morning when angels appeared to shepherds and said, we have good news. And that good news is of great, what? Joy. And it is for all people. For this morning in the town of Bethlehem, a saviour has been born to you. They actually ripped that message off, actually. Those angels were... Um, uh, basically just copyrighted that, from the Romans who would do that every year on Caesar's birthday. Okay, so they would pronounce uh, evangelion, is the Greek word, they'd pronounce good news as they went around to Roman villages as they announced Caesar's birthday because they would say, good news, Caesar is in charge. Okay, and it's his birthday today. And so this is what the angels do. They come and they say, there's a new leader in town. Okay, there's a new ruler that has come in town and we bring you good news. And it's good news of great joy. Well, last week I explained that I felt Holy Spirit challenge me uh, in my part to play in this series was to look at the sermons of the early church leaders as found in the book of Acts. The book of Acts uh, is also a book of announcements. There are a number of sermons in that book. And last week I fo focused on Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, 5 and 10. You remember that, don't you? Where Peter, there's a common thread in Peter's message of announcing the good news of total forgiveness. How many of you believe that is good news? The good news in Christ of total forgiveness. Well, this morning, my project is to move on to the next big sermon we see in the book of Acts. And it's not preached by an apostle. It's preached by an ordinary believer who was ordained in the church as what many would call a deacon in chapter 6 of the book of Acts. And he becomes Christianity's first martyr. Today, I want to look at the preaching of a man called Stephen. And I like to describe Stephen as the example of an ordinary life lived full. Because Stephen was an ordinary man. There's no indication he was an apostle. No indication he was even an original follower of Jesus. Okay? He was just an ordinary man in the church. The first time we're introduced to him is because the apostles just say, choose someone in the church. Just choose someone known among you. He was just a normal member of the church. He was ordinary. But he was an ordinary man that lived life full. Because chapter 6 tells us that he was full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Chapter 6, when it introduces us to him, tells us that he was full of power and of faith. He was a man full of God's grace. And what we see in this life, an ordinary man lived full, we see a person that looks just like Jesus. How many ordinary people do we have here today? Ordinary people that live full of God, our lives can look just like Jesus. And so if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 7. In fact, we're going to start here from chapter 6. I'm going to sit down today so I can take a drink on occasion. Okay, uh, And also because I just wanted to do something. Yeah, I just can. 
You get to do it. I get to do it. Acts chapter 6. I'm going to be reading today from the New Living Translation because uh, the New Living is, uh, is an easy-to-read version. And so today we're going to be reading largely a narrative story, not so much a solid word-for-word teaching, but more like getting the Marbo vibe of the story, okay? That's sort of the whole idea here. So we're going to read from chapter 6 and verse 18, introduced to Stephen. Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power. He performed amazing miracles and signs among the people, but one day some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia and the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. And so they persuaded some men to lie about him, saying, We've heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. History has a habit of repeating itself. 2,000 years ago, there was a tendency in the heart of people that if you could not argue someone and they confronted your views, people would defer to just slandering them. Now, we don't see that today, thank God. (laughs) Of not listening and simply slandering. Name-calling. It's exactly what happened to Jesus. They couldn't stand up against Jesus' wisdom. And so they thought, well, the easiest way to dismiss this guy is just to simply call him demonic, Beelzebub, okay, and to misrepresent his views. And so if you were... Um, bold enough to a few years ago stand up and say, you know what, I don't think marriage should be redefined in our country. Then you weren't someone with an argument, you were anti-gay. If you believe or were willing to believe at the start of this year that our state government should probably not allow killing, uh, or sorry, aborting babies at full term, we probably shouldn't do that, then you're dismissed as just being anti-woman. If you believe that it's not right for a workplace or a government to say you must take a medicine that you don't want, well, it's easy to dismiss you and just say you're anti-science. This tactic is used over and over again throughout history. Nothing's new. (laughs) History just repeats itself. And this is what these guys seem to do. They're listening to a man. They don't want to listen to him. In fact, it says they can't stand up to him. He's saying something that actually makes a lot of sense and it threatens them. And so they, rather than listening, pick up mud and begin smearing him. They encourage people to lie about what it is he's actually saying. Just got quiet in here all of a sudden. What's the matter with you? So they, none of them, so they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen. We've heard him blaspheme against Moses and against God. He is anti-leadership, he's anti-Moses, and he's anti-God, this guy. But that sounds like a bit of a... Uh, problem. Verse 12, this roused the people, got people's emotions all stirred up. <gasps> How dare he be anti-God and anti-Moses? The elders and the teachers of the religious law. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. The lying witnesses said, this man is always speaking against the holy temple. And you know, sometimes exaggeration is a sign of, <laughs> of weakness. Well, They're always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We've heard him say, that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple 
and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And so we see this thing of him being anti-Moses. What that actually means is that he wants to change what Moses has said. Or he's anti-law or anti-customs, anti-tradition. That's what it actually sort of means a bit more specifically. And he's anti-God, which actually they're now saying means anti-temple. He's somehow anti the presence of God. Anti-God, anti-Moses, there's these two arguments made against him. And the word there for lie can actually be translated deceit. The Greek is pseudo-something. These were pseudo-witnesses. And like all good lies, they work because there's kind of an element of truth to it. Jesus did actually talk in his life. In fact, the biggest prophecy he ever gave was about the temple being destroyed, something that was like impossible to think would ever happen. Jesus said, yeah, it's going to happen. And he not only said that, but he also said, one greater than the temple is here, by the way. By the way, destroy it and I'll rebuild it in three days. And by the way, it doesn't matter where you worship, whether your forefathers worshipped here or whether your forefathers worshipped here. The time has come, it doesn't matter. There's no such thing as a sacred place. You can worship God anywhere. So this was actually Jesus, part of Jesus' message, that that temple was going to come down. We've got reason to believe that the first disciples carried on that message. Jesus also, it could be said, would also, would also say that the customs of Moses were not going to change, but their significance was going to change. And we know that. The message of Jesus, the works of Jesus, changed the significance of what the temple sacrifices meant and the celebrations and the festivals. It didn't change the law. Uh, Jesus literally said, I'm not here to abolish the law, but a time has come, these things are being fulfilled. So it's not like I'm changing them, but I'm exchanging them for something better. That's actually the message of the New Testament. So there is an element of truth here to these... They're not totally off base. No, there is an element of truth that the early church were people that said the significance of the temple, which is about to come down, and the significance of Moses' customs are changing. But this was actually a positive message. See, for the early church and for Jesus, it was a very positive thing the temple was coming down. It was actually very positive things that the customs of Moses were about to be changed because they're about to be exchanged for something a lot better. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says something superior, something far better than what our forefathers had. So it's actually a really good message, but these people reframed that positive message in a very negative light. So they took a very positive message and they reframed it in, reframed it in a very, very negative way. And this aroused people's emotions so that they bring Stephen to the Sanhedrin. These are the religious and political leaders of the time. In verse 15 it says, At this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen, accused of these two things, things very similar to what they accused Jesus of. They stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. That's supposed to remind you, so you could argue, of Moses coming down from Sinai, whose face shone. It's supposed to remind you, so you could argue, of Jesus' transfiguration before his trial and death, when he was transfigured and shown. This is basically God saying, I'm with this boy. I'm with this boy. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these accusations true? Now, how many of you know that is a real simple message, uh, question? 
Okay. Is this true, Stephen? What's your options, mate? You either say, or... But no, no, no. Stephen had an old man moment. He wouldn't just give a one-word answer, you see. He now launches into proclaiming the longest sermon in the whole New Testament. The longest sermon ever recorded in the New Testament, which goes for about five minutes. It shows you how long sermons should be. It goes for about five minutes if you read it. But it's still the longest sermon we have. He wouldn't just say no. And he wouldn't say a straight out yes. He kind of says yes in a long way. And what he does is he begins to narrate a story of Israel's history. He begins to narrate a story. And what's profound and what the challenge that this has brought me this week as someone who's promised to you that I'm going to use the sermons of the New Testament to show you good news, is that as Stephen preaches, he's interrupted before he gets to the end. And he doesn't actually announce good news. He doesn't get to the point where he can talk about why Jesus died, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, forgiveness, repentance, belief, baptism, faith, grace, love, kindness. Doesn't get to any of that stuff that we would consider the good news of the gospel. He's interrupted before he gets there. And so I had a challenge this week of going, how do I get good news out of this sermon? When even Stephen was cut off before he could get there. So that's what I want to do. I want to show you, first of all, take you to the end of the message to see how that happens at the end of his <coughs> longest five-minute sermon. He comes here in verse... Uh, where am I going to read from? At the end of the message, verse 51. He finishes his message by saying this. Well, this is where his message gets to. You stubborn people. How to win friends and influence the congregation, right? You stubborn people. You are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist Holy Spirit? That is what your ancestors did, and so now do you. In fact, just name one prophet your ancestors did not persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though... You received it from the hands of angels. Remember, he's accused of two things, being anti-God and being anti-law, being anti-Moses. And what he does right there is he flips the tables. He says, no, nah, it ain't me that's being anti-Moses, it's you. You actually are the ones that have disobeyed Moses. You actually are the one that have not learned the lessons from your history. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation. They shook their fists at him in rage but Stephen full of the Holy Spirit gazed steadily into heaven and he saw the glory of God he also saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand and he told them look I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand there are many times in the scripture, maybe half a dozen, where it talks about Jesus being at the right hand of God. It's a place of prominence and authority. Okay? But every time it mentions Jesus being there, it talks about him being seated, seated at the right hand of God. Here, Steve-O says, I can see him standing. And it gives rise to different theories about to why Jesus was standing. Many people uh, land on the possibility that Jesus is welcoming, about to welcome Stephen into heaven. 
as the first martyr. When we have friends come to our home, often we can see from our lounge room, we can see when people drive up the driveway or in the cul-de-sac and I don't just stay on the couch. It's customary for us to get up, meet them at the door. You know, you stand to welcome someone. So maybe that's what Jesus is doing. Maybe he's giving him, as it were, a standing ovation and a standing welcome. The other possibility is that Jesus is here as Stephen's attorney. You see, this is a courtroom scene. Stephen is on trial. And what does an attorney do? He stands when you're defending someone. Stands before the judge to say, I plead innocence for this man. It's possible that's what he's doing. It's possible Jesus was standing because he was not the attorney in that scene. He was actually the true judge. Because the other things in the ancient world that judges would do is that they would sit as they listened and then they would rise as they gave their verdict. This is why in the amphitheatre when you watch Gladiator and Commodus is there, okay, you see the, the emperor there and the, the, the leaders and there's a battle. Kill him, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down, you know, that whole thing. We don't know if that's historical but it makes a good movie. And he stands up and he gives his verdict and this is possibly... A picture of Jesus as judge. That actually, you know what? You're putting this guy on trial, but do you know who's really in charge here? Jesus is in charge. And he's actually not the guilty one. It's the rest of y'all. They're actually doing the wrong thing. We don't know. You can go home and talk about that uh, over lunch. But what we do know is that Stephen here calls Jesus the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is a common... It's not a common phrase, actually, about... Um, Jesus in the Old Testament, it's only mentioned by Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. Ezekiel calls himself the son of man all the time. But this is a title in Daniel chapter 7 of a human figure coming into the presence of God, the Ancient of Days who's opening scrolls in a courtroom scene. And, the, and this son of man figure comes to the Ancient of Days and it says it was given to him all dominion, ruler, power and authority and people of all nations, tribes and tongues would worship him and his kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom and he would vindicate his people from those who were persecuting them. So by saying son of man, Stephen is actually having a go at them and saying watch out because I can see someone who has promised to vindicate his people if you push them around too hard. Keep reading. Verse 57. Then they put their hands over their ears and they began shouting. I'm not listening to any more of this. They rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid him at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin, and with that he died. And you don't have to be a biblical scholar to recognise that that sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Who else shone in a transfiguring light? Who else was brought before Sanhedrin and had false witnesses brought against him? Who else was actually in the right and people stubbornly refused to believe him? Who else, as he was dying, saw and said to the Sanhedrin, I see the Son of Man. The Son of Man, you're going to see him at the right hand of God. Who else in his death said, forgive them? I received my spirit. Stephen was an ordinary man who lived life to the full. And what that looks like in both life and death is it looks like Jesus. And I know our previous series was called Heroes, but for me, that makes Stephen pretty heroic. 
but it also makes Stephen look like a real failure, actually. Um, this whole incident was a bit of a flop because he didn't get to preach about Jesus. Uh, he didn't get to preach about why Jesus died. No one believed. No one was baptized. No one repented. No one came to eternal life. No one received the Holy Spirit that day. It's a real anticlimax. And so, and actually, he made things worse because on that day, great persecution arose against Christians. They thought, if we can get away with it with Stephen, we can get away with it with other people. And so the whole church began to scatter. And so it actually looked like a miserable failure. So it's a bit disappointing, really. You see, it sounds like Peter's message, you killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead and if you would believe you'd receive eternal life. He doesn't get to the but. He's stopped before the but comes and he can't really share good news. Now there's a bit of a hint of good news, I guess, knowing that the story ends with Saul being there. It's kind of a hint, hint. There's a young man there watching this happen who thought he was in the right but was actually in the wrong and that man would later become Christianity's greatest champion there is a hint there of hope and good news it's kind of a sign isn't it that when you stand for what you believe you never know who's watching you never know who's watching you live according to your convictions die according to convictions and never know what profound effect that might have on them be that as it may, there's not much good news in this story. So there's two threads throughout, and this has been my challenge this week. The one thread of this sermon is the fact that, listen, you think I'm anti-Moses, but in fact you are. In fact, over your history, you've always rejected God's chosen voice. You rejected Moses, and now you're rejecting Jesus. You're repeating the errors of your ways. That's a thread that goes throughout this sermon. The other thread that goes throughout, and this is where I just felt God... This is my encouragement for you today. The other thread that we see through this sermon is answers the accusation of Stephen being anti-temple. And it's this. God is with us no matter where we are, no matter where life takes us, no matter what changes come our way, God is always with us. And you've made a big deal about this temple, that that's where God is. But listen, things change. Change is here to stay. But through every season of change, God is with us. And that is good news. My encouragement to you, church, this morning is simply this. The good news, that God is with us. God is with us through every season of change. And that's what I want us to see as we look at Stephen's sermon this morning. All right? And as a good preacher, Stephen gives a narrative. He gives a big story of their history, which they didn't need to hear because they knew the history of people, but he was empathizing with them and he's letting them know, I'm on your side. This is our story. And like all good preachers, he delivers it in three points. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. All right. This is Stephen's sermon. Chapter 7 and verse 1. The first point is he says, God was with us in the era of Abraham. God was with us in the era and the time of Moses and the judges. And God was with us when David came and this temple was built. Three distinct periods of our history. Chapter 7. The high priest asked Stephen, are these accusations true? This was Stephen's reply. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. 
our glorious God, literally the God of glory, appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. God is not limited to this time and place. He appeared to our forefather in Iraq. God told him, leave your native land and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. So Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran until his father died. Then God brought him here to the land where you now live. But God gave him no inheritance, not even one square foot of land. God did promise, however, that eventually the whole land would belong to Abraham and his descendants, even though he had no children yet. God also told him that his descendants would live in a foreign land where they would be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. Where was that? But I will punish the nation that enslaves them, God said, and in the end they will come out and worship me here in this place. I spoke to you in Mesopotamia. I was with you in Haran. I'll be with you in Egypt, and I'll also be with you when you come back here. God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision at that time. When Abraham became the father of Isaac, he circumcised him on the eighth day. And the practice was continued when Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of the twelve of the Israelite nation. These patriarchs were jealous of their brother Joseph. They sold him to be a slave in Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. God gave him favour before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He also gave Joseph unusual wisdom so that Pharaoh appointed him governor over all Egypt and put him in charge of the palace. From the prison to the palace, God is with Joseph. But a famine came upon Egypt and Canaan. There was a great misery and our ancestors ran out of food. Jacob heard that there was still grain in Egypt, so he sent his sons, our ancestors, to buy some. The second time they went, Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers. That's kind of a way of saying our ancestors didn't recognize Joseph the first time. Joseph came. Joseph was there as the one who would provide for them, save them and rescue them and they didn't recognize him the first time. So he gave them another chance to recognize him again. They recognized him the second time. They were introduced then to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent for his father Jacob and all his relatives came to Egypt, 75 in all. Jacob went to Egypt. He died there as did our ancestors. Their bodies were taken to Shechem and buried in the tomb Abram had bought for a certain price from Hamor's sons in Shechem. There's details omitted, there's details given, but the two threads are there. God appoints people to lead. Even if you misidentify them the first time, he'll give you another chance. Don't keep missing who God has appointed. Don't keep missing it. And secondly, he's trying to make the point, God is with us no matter where we've been. Mesopotamia, Haran, Egypt, the prison, the palace. God is with us. Change is here to stay. Change is here to stay. But God is with us in every changing season. We move on to the story now. Second point, second aspect is the story of Moses. And the era of the judges. As the time grew near, when God would fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. But then a new king came to the throne in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. This king exploited our people, oppressed them, forcing parents to abandon their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, a beautiful child in God's eyes. His parents cared for him at home for three months. When they had to abandon him, 
Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and raised him as her own. Moses was taught in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was powerful in both speech and action. One day when Moses was 40, he decided to visit his fellow relatives, the people of Israel. He saw an Egyptian mistreating one of his own Israelites. So Moses came to the man's defense and avenged him, actually killing the Egyptian. Moses assumed that his fellow Israelites would realize that God had sent him to rescue them. But they did not recognize Moses at first. The next day he visited them again and saw two men of Israel fighting. He tried to be a peacemaker. Many said, you're bros. Hey, what's the problem? Peace. Why are you fighting each other? But the man in the wrong pushed Moses aside. Who made you a ruler and judge over us? He asked, are you going to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard that, he fled to the country and lived as a foreigner in the land of Midian. There his two sons were born. Forty years later in the desert near Mount Sinai, an angel appeared to Moses in the flame of a burning bush. You see, God is not limited to a time and a place. God can meet you in the backside of the desert when you feel like your calling has failed. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he went to take a closer look, the voice of the Lord called out to him, I am the God of your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses shook with terror and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. No building had been constructed. No vestiges, no garments, no emblems of worship were present. But it was holy ground. Because God was there. I've certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groans and I have come down to rescue them. Now go because I'm sending you back to Egypt. God sent back the same man his people had previously rejected when they demanded who made you ruler and judge over us. Same thing they said about Jesus, isn't it? Who made you ruler and judge? Through the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush, God sent Moses to be their ruler and saviour and by means of many wonders and miraculous signs he led them out of egypt through the red sea and through the wilderness for 40 years and how many of you know that god was with them in the wilderness for 40 years at mount sinai in egypt at a burning bush through every changing season god was with his people moses himself told the people of israel god will raise up for you a prophet like me Watch what you've seen in me because one like me is going to come from among your own people and you better make sure you listen to him. Moses was with our ancestors, the church, the assembly of God's people in the wilderness when the angel spoke to him at Mount Sinai and there Moses received life-giving words to pass on to, to us. I'm not anti-Moses, by the way. I'm not anti-Moses. I know God spoke to Moses. That is part of our story. But our ancestors refused to listen to him. They rejected him and wanted to return to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what's become of them. It's Moses who's brought us out of Egypt. So they made an idol shaped like a calf. They sacrificed to it and celebrated over this thing that their hands had made. God turned away from them and abandoned them to serve the stars of heaven as their gods. In fact, in the book of the prophets is written, was it to me that you were bringing sacrifices and offerings during those 40 years in the wilderness, Israel? No, no, no. You carried your pagan gods, the shrine of Molech, the star of your God, Raphan, and the images you made to worship them. So I will send you into exile as far away as Babylon. Our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. 
It was constructed according to the plan God had shown to Moses. And years later, when Joshua led our ancestors in battle against the nations that God drove out of the land, the tabernacle was taken with them into their new territory. You see, we've got a long history. God can appear in a bush. He can meet you in slavery. He can be with you in the desert. He can meet us on a mountain. And he can be with us in a tent. The good news is that through every changing season, God is committed to being with us. God is committed to being with us. Let's learn from that history. Jesus hasn't come to abolish that history. He's just showing us that change is here to stay. But through every changing season, God is with us. And make sure that we don't repeat the errors of those who've gone before us by continuing to reject that which God is saying for this season. Now he comes to his third part of the history. He comes to David, the maestro that worshipped God in music. He finishes with this. David found favour with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who actually built it. However, the Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands. As the prophet Isaiah says, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Could you build me such a resting place? After all, didn't my very hands make the heavens and the earth? You stubborn people. You're heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Make sure you don't repeat the errors of your ancestors. There's two accusations brought against Stephen that he tries to answer. The first is that he's anti-Moses. And he's saying, listen, I'm not. I'm just recognizing Moses' proper place in our story. I'm just recognizing its proper place. I'm just recognizing its significance. Just because I think of something as greater or lesser significance to you doesn't mean I'm anti it. I'm not anti-Moses. I just realize it's proper place in our story. I've just got a different perspective on Moses and his role, but I have great honor and respect for him. And Jesus has changed. He's brought in a new era by which we are to look at what God has done in the past with not the same modern current experience and significance that we do today. And that very law shows us a pattern, shows us how we are not to behave to make sure we don't repeat the past, the errors of the past. History will continue to repeat itself. Our job is to make sure that we learn the lessons and don't repeat the same mistakes. But there's also another thread through my message, and I'm not anti-temple. I just recognize that God has not always limited himself to a temple. We had God's presence before this temple was ever constructed. And we will have God's presence well after this whole damn thing comes down. It's fascinating to me. I've taught you that when you see an Old Testament quote in the Bible, you're meant to hyperlink it and go read it in its context. Stephen's preaching and he's saying, we built this temple. We built this temple. We built this temple. But God says... 
Heaven is my home. I won't be contained in it. Now, why did he quote Isaiah and not Solomon himself? Because Solomon himself said when he built the temple, God won't be contained here. It's too big for it. Now, I as a preacher would quote Solomon because that makes more sense. So why did Stephen quote Isaiah? Well, you hyperlink, you go back and look at Isaiah. And in that chapter, in that whole chapter of, of, of quoting Isaiah, he's actually talking about that very same temple coming down. He's actually talking about the time where that second temple would be destroyed. And that's why he chose that verse. Because he's actually saying, you know what? In our history, God has not contained himself to one time and place. And in our future, God will not contain himself to one time and place. Change is inevitable. Change is here to stay. But God is with us. And he's with us through every changing season. Whether we are in Mesopotamia, in Haran or Canaan, whether we're in Egypt or Sinai, whether in a trance or in a bush or a mountain or a tent, whether we are in oppression or whether we are in liberation, whether we are in prison or a palace, whether we're in times of barrenness or times of fruitfulness, whether we're in times of victory or times of defeat, whether in, in times of pressure or whether we're in times of peace, whether we're in times of poverty or whether we're in times of prosperity, change is inevitable. Change is here to stay. But God is with us through every changing season. God was with you in your younger years. And he will be with you still as your body begins to feel its age. God was with you in your schooling years. And he will be with you still when you step out into the workforce. God is with, was with you during your parenting years. And he will be with you still when your children leave home. God was with you when mum and dad were just a phone call away. And he will be with you still when they're no longer around to call. God was with you in all those years of your married life. And he will be with you still in all the years of your widowhood. God was with you when you served another man. And God will be with you still when you start your own business. God was with you in the place that you loved and poured your heart into. And God will be with you still when a new place opens up to you. God was with you in your times of recognition and profile and prominence when people knew who you were. And God will be with you still in those seasons of obscurity where it seems like you're invisible. God was with you when your vision was super clear. And God will be with you still when your skies are a little cloudy and you're not quite sure what he's doing. Because change will always be with us. 
Change is here to stay. But the good news is that God is with us. He is with us through every changing season. And he is with us in every changing season. And that's good news. He's not limited to a time. He's not limited to a place. And we have the lessons of others who've walked this road before to give us encouragement and strength as we journey with him the best we know how. many things we can do when we share communion together. Communion is our recognition of a common union. We're in it together. Common union we have with God and a common union that we have with one another as a family. One of the things we do at communion is we can look back and be grateful that he was with us in the past. When we were still enemies, he was with us and he loved us. One of the things we can do at communion is we can look in our present and be grateful he is here with us now. And one of the things we can do in communion is look into our future and be grateful that he will be with us tomorrow. So I think a good way to respond this morning is to share communion together. Look back. Look right now. Look forward and be grateful that God is with us through every changing season. Can we do that together? I hope you've enjoyed today's message. Remember to check us out at baysidechurch.org.au. And of course, if you're ever in the area, please pop in and say good day. Bye.